0: is Sam of Historiansplaining, a historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. This podcast is on Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, and other platforms, and those can be found now through a new website just recently launched at www.historiansplaining.com. And if you can support this podcast, help keep it coming, and if you want to hear the patron-only lectures, please go to my Patreon page. The link is in the description. So in this new year, there are several people that I've had in mind that I want to have as guests for interviews and conversations on this podcast. But the first of them, which I'm going to share now, is with Professor Hannah Barker, of Arizona State University, who recently had a book come out through University of Pennsylvania Press called That Most Precious Merchandise, The Mediterranean Trade in Black Sea Slaves, about the traffic in human captives and slaves in the Mediterranean world in the late Middle Ages. So I think it provides an interesting counterpoint and background to the rise then of the African slave trade, which of course has been such a huge topic of discussion and debate in present day America. And it also serves to fill in a very important part of the picture of the Middle Ages and the medieval world, which is something I've tried to clarify and illuminate accurately all through the life of this podcast over the last several years. So I hope you enjoy hearing this conversation. Welcome Hannah Barker. You are a professor of medieval history at Arizona State University. I have read through this really remarkable book called That Most Precious Merchandise, The Mediterranean Trade in Black Sea Slaves, 1260 to 1500. And just in brief, this book discusses the structure and I think really painstakingly reconstructs how the slave trade worked in the late Middle Ages from the 1200s through the 1400s where captives from wars and raids in Eastern Europe, the Caucasus, Central Asia, that whole region could be sold to merchants on the Black Sea and then trafficked to Egypt or westward to Venice and Genoa in Italy, where they would be sold mainly to private buyers and used for domestic labor, other kinds of labor, sexual exploitation, and sometimes military service. But firstly, what made you want to study this trade in slaves in the Mediterranean world? How did it come to your notice, and why did you decide to put so much research into this?
1: So, in a sense, it was kind of an accident. I came into graduate school interested in Christian, Muslim relationships and connections in the context of trade. But I hadn't really thought about specifically what group of merchants or what kind of trade. I hadn't made that decision yet. And in my first semester in graduate school, my advisor, Adam Costa, was team teaching a class with Evan Haefeli on captivity. And so I thought, well, I better take this class. Mm. But I had no idea what I was going to write a research paper about. And so I started looking into captivity and slavery in the Middle Ages and sort of stumbled across this. And the paper I wrote for that class was a really terrible paper. <laughs>
0: um,
1: but it would, but it made, I, I had scratched the surface of something. And by the time I finished that paper, I realized that one could do a much better job if one was going to put enough time and effort into it to really follow up on things. So that that was I ended up getting hooked at that point.
0: And you can see reading the book even that there's this sort of rabbit hole where one yes. type of source leads to another and another, and there's so many different sorts of sources that you've pieced together here. The two countries that, as you explained, that bought and exploited the greatest number of these captives and slaves were Egypt and Italy, and you know more specifically the commercial cities of, of Venice and Genoa in Italy. And in many respects, these places were very different. Obviously, first and foremost, that Egypt was an Islamic society and these Italian cities were were Christian. But you are very clear that these different countries that trafficked in slaves have to be looked at together as part of one system. And you use this term one single culture of slavery or a shared culture of slavery. So why, why was that very important to you? And do you think that the whole subject looks different in some important way if you put these these people and places together in one analysis.
1: Yeah, so there are are two. One thing I should say before we really get into this is there were other societies that traded large numbers Mm -hmm. of slaves. Um, I didn't look at Iberia at all, Mm -hmm. not because it's not important, but because there was more scholarship on that already. And adding Iberia into this, looking at Barcelona and places like that, That is also really interesting and it's connected into these systems, but in terms Mm -hmm. of practicality for writing a coherent publishable book, it would have been too much, right? Um, We could also have looked at Byzantium. We could also have looked at North Africa. There's interesting cities in Southern Italy, Naples and Mm -hmm. uh, Messina are also hubs for the slave trade. So I picked Genoa and Venice on the one hand and um, the Mamluks in Egypt and sort of the greater Syria area on the other hand partly because they were connected, they were connected by their source of supply. So they were getting their slaves from the same place through the same channels, but then using them for very different purposes. And so that's part of the reason why I thought they needed to be studied together because they're not two separate systems of slave trafficking, They're, they're intimately connected with each other. And so I don't think you can properly understand one without looking at the other because they're connected. The other reason I really wanted to do that is because people have tended to study them separately. So there are books about slavery in medieval Genoa, there's books about slavery in medieval Venice, there's books about slavery in medieval Cairo. But if you only look at one set of evidence, it tends to distort the ways that they're connected. And so there were things that you can only see if you put all of it together. If you're only looking at it from one place, you're not going to see those things.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I think that something that the book underscored was how much contact there was between Christians and Muslims through trade especially that they, these societies were very familiar with one another in all kinds of ways and you know and we think of course of the crusades which were very important and right. significant events but it's not as if that's the main way <laughs> that people from europe and the Middle East and Byzantium came into contact from year to year. Mm -hmm. And there are all these incidents where Italian merchants had some merchandise, including some slaves. They tended to be kind of mixed in with other goods and commodities. And they would bring them to the markets in Alexandria and Cairo on behalf of Mamluk traders or the Mamluk government even. And Mm -hmm. they were working sometimes almost hand in glove which you know, raises interesting <laughs> questions too that, that maybe we'll get to that come in later in the book, the sort of political implications. Yeah. But how did, you, how did you go about researching this? I mean, it must've been an enormous number of different archives with different sorts of records in different languages, is that correct?
1: Right. Well, and this is one of the areas where I knew, since I knew coming into this that I was interested in intercultural and interreligious connections, I knew there was going to be some language work. So on the Italian side, the main um, languages I was working with were Italian and Latin. And this is the period where those are being used kind of side by side, especially as legal languages. So that's interesting on its own. And then on the Mamluk side, obviously, Arabic is the main language of the written sources. And that has been one of the reasons why people have not studied these things together is that just the whole you know, structure of academic training tends to take you either in a Latin direction or in an Arabic direction or other languages one might study, right? But people weren't necessarily studying those two languages. That's now starting to change. There are more and more people who are interested in medieval Mediterranean history who do Latin and Arabic or Arabic and Greek or, you know, whatever combination makes sense for them. But that, that linguistic boundary in research um, has started to break down and it's enabling all kinds of really new, interesting topics.
0: That's really interesting that the, the discipline is shifting in that way. And certainly, <laughs> you know, if you work in European or, or Asian history, you, you sometimes hear criticisms of American historians that we work in so few languages. <laughs> how, how do you not just know Byzantine Greek and uh, you know, let alone mastering non-European, Semitic and other Asian languages. And so it, it seemed to me as if this must be unusual that someone has crossed that boundary and is able to reconstruct these networks across that line. But that's interesting that maybe the profession is moving more in that direction. People are prioritizing that more. And, and it, it also was interesting to me the way, you know, there are a few other books that I've encountered like this, where there's this kind of richness of little records about obscure people and obscure events. And then as you're building the picture, occasionally very famous individuals show up. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and you got to have a little passage discussing Marco Polo and his descriptions of the courts in, in Asia. Petrarch shows up, Petrarch's descriptions of Venice, which I, I loved. I thought it was kind of funny how he dis, he's disdainful of, oh, there are all these Tatar slaves running around in Venice. And Ibn Battuta, I loved mm-hmm. seeing uh, Ibn Battuta. And you have a little reinterpretation of how slave holding was so important to Ibn Battuta's famous travels. Can you, can you explain that of how did how is his career sort of possible because of slavery?
1: Right, so one of the things he's doing is as he goes from place to place, he might buy a slave or he might be given a slave as a gift because that's one of the things that people will give as sort of a, a diplomatic, honorable gift. Sometimes people will give slaves. So in one way or another, he's acquiring slaves in small numbers, two, three, And then as he travels onward at various points, he'll sell them, and then he has the money to use for other things. And then they're also providing him, in some cases at least, with companionship on the journey. He has children with several of his slaves along the way, and also sometimes with local knowledge. You know, if you're sort of picking up new slaves and selling old slaves at various points along the way, sometimes you can choose someone who is both a slave and providing domestic and sexual service, you know, cooking dinner and things like that, but also might know the local language. And this, so this is something that's very visible in, 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 in Ibn Battuta's account because he talks about it. He's very explicit about the fact that he has these slaves and he mentions when he gets a new one, he mentions when he sells a slave or there, there are slaves occasionally that run away from him. So he talks about that as well. A lot of other travelers do this as well, but they don't necessarily document it in the way that he does. And because it's this very long extended voyage and he's quite specific and quite detailed and he's, he's interested in his slaves, they're, they're people that he mentioned. It's a little bit easier to track what's going on with that,
0: which is really interesting. He was prolific, that's why he's so famous. But it, I, to me, it also was an example of how slavery, you know even from what reading I've done in medieval history, which, you know, is is limited, that's not my field, but you see captivity and slavery showing up sort of sometimes in these passing mentions without much explanation of what's going on, you know, who, where did this person come from? How are they being treated? How did they end up in this position? And it's sort of like, once you piece the jigsaw puzzle together, you can now kind of understand more what was going on? You know what, what does it mean that someone like Ibn Battuta shows up at a court and the ruler gives him a slave? <laughs>
1: yeah. Right. It really is this sort of jigsaw puzzle where people at the time take it for granted. And so they may or may not even mention it. If they do mention it, they're not going to explain because it's something that they assume that their readers understand. And so we have to do the work of kind of piecing this together and coming up with a bigger picture. And then you can interpret these off-the-cuff remarks by Petrarch or, or whoever. They've been there all along, but without having this sort of context about, you know, what is it that he's referring to? It didn't necessarily get people's attention.
0: So there were several things, I've, I've already mentioned a few, there were several things that really surprised me and struck me in reading the book. But is there something that to you in the course of your research that you really didn't expect that surprised you or made you have to look at things twice?
1: I was surprised by how disorganized it all was. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted there to be a system, right, that I could study and understand and, and figure it out. And it took me a while to come to terms with the fact that this is a fundamentally disorganized system. And that's kind of the point that um, there's lots of individuals who are involved in it, individually on a very small scale, but when you add them up, it can turn into a much bigger scale, right? And each of them are you know, in it for their own reasons and doing their own things. And you can look for patterns and there's, there's a certain basic consistency to it, but any individual case might be going off in a different direction from the general pattern that you would see. And in some ways, that's frustrating, but in other ways, it's really fascinating. And that's part of the rabbit hole aspect of this is every time you think you understand something, you find an example that you can't explain. And then you have to look further into it to try to to try to understand it more. And it was very satisfying to me when I finally found I think this is the beginning of chapter six of Venetian Senate. Decree where they're complaining about how hard it is to regulate the Black Sea slave trade because it's so disorganized and people just do whatever they want. That made me feel better because it made me think it's not just me. They also were frustrated by the fact that this was so disorganized.
0: Yeah, like it's not, I'm not crazy here. But yeah. <laughs> and you sort of explain that it was really kind of accidents of shifting political geography that sort of made it possible sometimes for people to obtain these captives and move them into the slave trade. And then at other moments, it would stop, There, there would be an invasion. Sometimes wars would cut off the trade. Sometimes wars would encourage the trade because they would produce more prisoners who could then be trafficked as slaves. So it could kind of cut unpredictably either way several things that that made an impression on me. One was just trying to get my arms around all the different sorts of people who became slaves in this, in this trade. And, you know, just, just to begin there, it seems as if Tatars, Circassians, and Russians were maybe the three, either the three biggest groups or the three most desired groups. And you discuss a lot the purchasers of slaves and their preferences and how they seem to want certain sorts of people more than others. And for some reason, Circassians were like, ah, this is, this is like the gold standard for slaves. But a lot of Tatars and Russians. Br- just briefly, can you tell us who, who are Tatars?
1: So actually I can't tell you briefly who are Tatars. I mean, but, but I'll explain why. Um, and I should preface this as, and say that this is also for the Black sea slave trade. The groups that are the most important are Tatars, Russians, and Circassians. I'm leaving out other parts of the slave trade, right? So if we were focusing on Iberia, you'd see a lot more slaves from Africa, for example. If you look earlier in, in Genoa in the 12th century, before the Genoese really get access to the Black Sea markets, most of their slaves are identified as being either Saracens or Sards, people from Sardinia, right? So there's this sort of moment where there's a lot of slaves from Sardinia, and then that moment passes and they kind of move on to the Black Sea. Okay. So part of this is I'm looking at a particular historical context, and within that context, these are the biggest groups. That being said, there, there is a pretty significant flux of, of slave trading going through the Black Sea. So there are, for, for about a century and a half, these are sort of the main groups mm-hmm. when we're looking at Italian slave markets and at the Mamluk slave markets. Mm -hmm. So in terms of who the Tatars are, that is actually a really complicated question. The short answer that people tend to give either is that Tatars are people who speak Tatar. So it's a linguistically defined group, which is not helpful because then you have, okay, so what is the Tatar language? (laughs) And then there's also a question about the distinction between Tatar and Mongol. And again, what people tend to say is these are all people who are living in the sort of post Chinggis Khan successor states, the Golden Horde, um, which is in sort of so- Southern Russia and what's now the Ukraine. And on the one hand, and then the Ilkhanate, which is roughly speaking around where Iran is today. Within those states, Mongols are people who are part of the ruling lineage. Tatars is everyone else. And Tatar sometimes includes the Mongol rulers as well. So Tatar is the more sort of general category. And then Mongols are people who have a specific connection to specific Mongol lineages, right? On the other hand, I'm not entirely satisfied with that because I think there are, When you're looking at the slave trade, the way the Mamluks use the word Tatar is a little bit different from the way the Italians use the word Tatar. And so there are people who would be Tatar in Genoa, but not Tatar if they were in Alexandria and people who would be Tatar in Alexandria, but not in Genoa. So that's not a complete answer. Right. And the the reason why I can't give you a better answer is this is actually my second book project is to try to look into how these terms. I mean. Tatar is the messiest one, but then Russian, what does it mean to be Russian in the 13th century? It certainly means something different than it means today, right? Or Circassian or Saracen or any of these other terms, right? There's sort of general questions about how they're used but then there's also this very specific question about what does this mean in a slave market? So that's something that I wanna look further into but I'm not far enough into that project to have answers yet which is why I'm sort of backing off from this question.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it, it certainly seems all these labels are very politically charged and they could all mm-hmm. kind of shift around depending on power politics, power relationships. But basically you have, you have these groups as the slave traffickers sort of perceived them. They're almost mm-hmm. like, you can almost think of them as like product labels of like I'm marketing yeah. captives. And so I'm calling them Tatar, Circassian. And then there also are Jews, Bulgars, Poles, some Germans are mentioned. So peoples that we think of as European are are also in the mix, you know, without kind of almost without distinction. Kipchaks, Abkhaz, Alans, people (laughs) I had barely, you know, heard of in in years. I mean, Grelians. You, You have to go pretty deep into sort of Caucasus geography to even sort out who are some of these peoples. Yeah. And also, in some points, Ethiopians and Indians. Mm-hmm. And, and that really intrigued me. How Do you have any idea how, maybe we're talking more about the Islamic aspect here than the European, but either way, do you have any idea how people all the way from India or what was considered India ended up in this trade?
1: Yeah, in terms of specific individuals, not. Although Ibn Battuta is a clue, right, because he visits all of these places and he takes slaves with him and that that is kind of the indicator right all of these places are connected so um you have these two mongol states that i mentioned the golden horde and then you have the ilkhanate but then there's also the chagatai khanate which is in central asia and then you have yuan dynasty in china which is a mongol dynasty they interact with each other people travel not just i mean merchants obviously but also diplomats and messengers and all kinds of people are coming and going people are are marrying across those courts and when you you intermarry with a different noble family in a different kingdom you bring an entourage that entourage is going to include slaves then you have the slaves as diplomatic gifts and I think that's some of the ways in which slaves move great distance I think part of it is just underestimating the connectivity of the medieval world that There are large numbers of people who don't particularly travel very far in their lives, but there are some people who travel really far. And slaves are actually more subject to that than most other people because they don't have a choice. Um, If someone decides to give them as a diplomatic gift, they're going to go. There's also an aspect to this that's about rulers collecting slaves from what is to them exotic origins as a symbol of power, right? So you have the Khan of the Golden Horde, for example, has slaves that come from local origins, but also has African slaves. And the fact that he has African slaves is a sign that he has power over people who are that far away. And vice versa, you have Mansa Musa in Mali, for example, has Turkish slaves as well as local slaves. And the fact that he's mm. able to have this very wide range of slaves at his court is a sign that he, this is a court with global importance. So there's a way in which the movements of, of slaves over long distances is kind of an indicator of other kinds of connections between these groups of people.
0: Yeah, and I think that that speaks to how you described the role and significance of slavery and slaveholding in these societies, that it wasn't, it wasn't a very big factor economically. This is, we're, this right. is not like we're talking about a plantation society. It was a fairly small minority of people who traded or owned slaves. And it tended to be the elite, sometimes rulers. And, you know, with the Mamluks, they're, they're, they're this whole interesting system. unto them They're same.
1: unusual. Yeah. <laughs> yeah
0: they're really remarkable. But it tended to be the elites and the slaves, while their labor was important and useful, they also were important as status symbols, just kind yeah. of something to show off your your status, your power, and that could be just as significant in a place like Egypt or Italy as the, the labor production you would get out of these slaves.
1: Right, so there's, yeah, there, these slaves are mostly not working in agriculture, and we're talking relatively small numbers both of slaves at, in, in society, right? I think in, in Genoa, I think are the best estimates that I've seen, just numerical estimates. And we're talking two to 5% of the total population of Genoa mm-hmm. is enslaved. So it's relatively small. They're mostly women and children. There are very few adult men. And yeah, part, part of their role is this sort of symbolic, you know, as signs of wealth and also as signs of power and domination. The other thing that slaves are really important for, and this is where the gender dynamics come into this, is you know, what is the economic value of domestic labor? And that's something we debate about today, right? So they're not, they're not doing labor in the sense of agriculture or industrial or craft production, but then how do you value cooking and laundry and childcare and things? I mean, that's a lot of the work that slaves are doing. And then there's also the question of reproduction, and one of the ways in which enslaved women are extremely valuable, both in Italy and in the Mamluk context, but in different ways, is that they produce children without the obligations of a wife. So that can play out in various ways, depending on the slave owner and what he wants in terms of children, but that's something that I think we're now starting to explore what that means. But I think there's a lot more work to be done there as well.
0: Yeah. And clearly sexual exploitation was clearly a big part of why people bought slaves. Mm -hmm. And also a lot of slaveholders clearly were thinking about fathering children within slavery Mm -hmm. that happened Mm -hmm. frequently. But one of the points of difference that you note between the, the practice in an Islamic country like Egypt versus a Christian country is that in the Islamic society, if a man fathered a child with a slave, the mm-hmm. child was understood to be his child. Like as long as right. he acknowledged it, if this was a, an heir and the enslaved woman got a sort of improved status. She wasn't necessarily right. free, but she there's this title, I think Um-Walad, she yeah. so she'd be considered a, a mother and hence have some degree of protections and eventually would be understood to be free. Whereas that rule didn't exist in Christian Europe, or at least not in the societies you looked at. You you were still the the woman was still a slave, and the child might be not considered an heir, not have any kind of claim at all. But that changed a bit, and I think you you speculate a little bit about maybe why that that practice changed over the years in Europe, and maybe it's uh, maybe it was because of influence from the Islamic world. Do you, do you have anything anything further to say about that? Do you think that might be why that happened?
1: Yeah. So this is something that I'm really fascinated by, and. It's an area where I feel like I don't have all the pieces yet, but I feel like I'm, at, I'm looking for the right pieces now. So when I, just to take a step back, when I'm arguing about a common culture of slavery in the Mediterranean, it doesn't mean that everything is exactly the same in every society, right? There are some significant differences, but I want to put the weight on the similarities rather than the differences. So this question about what happens to enslaved women who have children by their male-free masters and then the status of those children that's one of the areas where there is a big difference right mm-hmm. and when you're looking at the islamic context as you said um women enslaved women who have children with i mean i'm adding all these specifics because they matter so it's their male free master has has a child with her um, the child is born free and is automatically an heir of their father And along with the children of any other enslaved women or wives or whatever, they automatically go into the inheritance pool. And the woman gets this special umwalad status. So she's not free, but she can't be sold. There are certain kinds of work that she can't be asked to do which are considered especially dishonorable. And when he dies, she should be manumitted. And there are some caveats, you know, if he dies in debt and they have to liquidate his estate, things can get complicated. But generally speaking, she should be freed when when he dies. So it's sort of a, a delayed manumission system for the mothers of children with their masters. In Europe, so this is not just Italy, this is Um, within the sphere of the Catholic church, right? Canon law, church law says that children follow the status of their mothers, period. So if the mother is free, it doesn't matter what the father's status is. The child is free. And if you don't know the mother's status, so if you have an abandoned orphan, for example, they are assumed to come from a free mother. And so they automatically would be free as well. But if the mother is known and the mother is a slave, then the child is a slave, period. And it doesn't matter who the father was so that's how things are supposed to work the thing that's really interesting to me is that that's not actually how it works right there are procedures for people to i mean on the one hand manumit their children by enslaved women and on the other hand to legitimize them so you can go through a set of legal procedures and you can end up with the same situation where the child is free and an heir But the father actually has to take some initiative and go fill out some documents and, you know, write a letter to the bishop and all those kind of things to make that happen. So it doesn't necessarily happen. What shifts in Iberia, I'm generalizing a little bit here, but in Iberia in the 13th century and in Italy in the late 14th century, is there starts to be just an assumption that if the father recognizes that the child is his, then that child's going to be free. Mm -hmm. So when do they stop following the letter of the law and start adopting this different set of customs instead, which in certain ways, in regard to the child, it looks a lot like what's going on in the Islamic world. The difference is what happens to the mother because there's never any assumption of anything like umala status. The the enslaved mother doesn't get any special privileges or protections. Mm -hmm. So where is that coming from? So I have various theories about this, but I haven't found the kind of evidence I would like to back up exactly how this influence is working. Generally speaking, I think this has to be coming through the enslaved women, but it also has to do with changes in the father's priorities. And for me, when I'm looking at Italy, where the the shift is a late 14th century shift, this has to do with the black death Mm. Um, that, suddenly having an heir, any heir who survives to adulthood has become a lot more tenuous than it was before. And so men of property and importance are more interested in having, in claiming as many children as they can. And if they can claim children from enslaved women, then this is in the long run, probably going to be beneficial for them. But it's hard to pin that down. I haven't been able to find anyone who's really saying anything like that directly in a medieval source. So I could be wrong. I could find something that leads a different direction.
0: Yeah, these things are very hard. And people often, when they take legal actions, they don't necessarily explain (laughs) for you what their motives are. Exactly. This, I think, opens up this whole uh, complication that runs through the book, especially the early parts of the book of the multiple layers of this system where there's a sort of stated philosophy of slavery, of what justifies it, what explains who can be a slave and why. Then there's the laws that were actually on the books. And Mm -hmm. then there's practice, what people really sometimes didn't conform to either. So it's this whole complicated kind of three-way dialectic going on but I'm sure a lot of people, one of the first questions a lot of people will think is, well, how did they justify slavery? Didn't, didn't people think this was immoral? How did they explain that this was okay for certain people to hold other people as slaves? And you point out that both Christian and Islamic philosophers held that freedom was the kind of normal default, natural position for human beings. Mm-hmm. But yet at the same time, they held that, well, some people can be slaves. Can you shed any light on how they reconciled that or how that could make sense?
1: Sure. So there's, there's the ideal state of affairs, right? Which is that, and and this sort of default idea that all people are fundamentally free. And then there's the fact that human societies don't, conform to divine will right that you know god can want something for the world that's more perfect than what we actually achieve and so there's a whole list of things that fall into the category of this is normal for human societies but it's a way in which humans have fallen short right Mm -hmm. war is one of them you know in the ideal society it should be peaceful and just and there should be no need for violent conflicts between people but human beings being who they are we have wars and wars are legal right i mean we don't like them but they happen and they fit within the legal framework of you know medieval thought so slavery is actually very closely connected to that because there's the idea that slaves come slaves are captives taken in war who are kept and so if war is one of these areas where human behavior falls short of the ideal, but is still acceptable, then slavery is actually kind of connected to that. It's another way in which human behavior falls short of the ideal, but is still acceptable to the people at the time. And it fits in also with the idea that hierarchy is an ideal that both Christian and Muslim philosophers in different ways buy into the idea that human societies should be hierarchical and it is right for some people to have more power than others. And you end up with this sort of scale of human hierarchy and slaves are the ones at the bottom, which is not a desirable position. It's not a position that anyone wants to be in. It's not a position that anyone would want for their own loved ones or family members to be in, but they still accept it as being legal and and socially acceptable. So that's kind of how they justify this on a philosophical level. And then they add to it a layer that the people who are most appropriate to enslave are people who uh, have different religious beliefs. So if you're Muslim, you shouldn't enslave other Muslims, but people who are not Muslim are fair game. If you're Christian, you shouldn't enslave other Christians, but people who are not Christian, those are okay. And we could look at other, I mean, I don't really look at Jewish societies, but there's also a, a similar idea that you, you shouldn't enslave fellow Jews, but people who are not Jews, that's all right. So that idea that having a hierarchy with slaves at the bottom is, for better or for worse, how human societies, how they assume that human societies should work, mm-hmm. and that who's at the bottom should have a religious component to it, that also is, seems to be very broadly accepted.
0: Yeah, well, there's clearly this religious criterion that it 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 is acceptable, it makes sense for someone to be a slave if they were captured, and when they were captured, they were not of our religion, they were sort of outside the fold, and this is something both Muslims and Christians say, but I also found it striking and kind of bizarre how you then, the expectation, the norm then, was that these slaves would then be converted. They would be compelled to convert to the religion of their owners. So Christians would convert slaves who might have been pagan or Muslim or any number of things would convert them to Christianity and Muslims would convert them to Islam. But that didn't mean they then became free.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So there's a couple things going on there one of them is that the logic of conversion in medieval societies is also different. I mean, we tend to think of religious belief and conversion in connection with that as a very personal choice, that people need to decide for themselves what they believe and if they decide to change religion, that that has to do with their personal conviction. Um, When you're looking at medieval ideas about religion, there's a very strong communal aspect to it that, I mean, yes, personal belief matters, but it also has to do with what community are you a part of? What rituals do you participate in? And, and all these other things linked to it. What do you eat? What do you wear? Where do you live? And so when someone changes, it's not just about changing their personal internal orientation towards God. It's also a change of community. Mm -hmm. And so apart from slavery, right? When people convert from one religion to another, they don't necessarily lose their association with their original community immediately. That takes time for them to be fully accepted in the new community. Sometimes multiple generations for them to be sort of fully accepted and have people not say, well, but their grandfather was whatever, you know? So that's part of it. The other part of it is the idea that because these are forced conversions, you have to maintain the pressure, right? That if mm. someone is freed, then they might just leave. Wow. So part of, part of the, justif- the, the justification for slavery is that you are, in the opinion of the people who are forcing these conversions, right? Forcing this person to come to the right side and you're going to make them stay there. And so the coercive apparatus of slavery is is tied to that. What's really interesting is that this is one of the ways to distinguish between who's a captive and who's a slave. Because captives, there's an expectation that this is at some level a temporary status, right? At some point, they're going to be ransomed or exchanged or whatever and be able to go home. And when they go home, they need to be able to reintegrate back into their society. So captives are generally not forced to convert and they might live in the captor society for years. But if they were forced to convert then that's sort of closing the option of being able to easily go back and join the community that they came from. Whereas slaves that's expected to be a permanent status. And so there's a lot more pressure to convert and to convert quickly. And this is part of bringing them into the new society where they're being enslaved because there is no expectation that they're gonna be able to go back to their old
0: community. Right, so there's there's this kind of gradation of how captives become slaves, that becomes their status. But then there's another irony here, which you discussed, which is that sometimes Christians did enslave captives who were also Christian. And and on, on one level, it might be that they were a different branch of Christianity. They were Eastern Orthodox as opposed to Roman Catholic but then there's a further kind of rationale or justification for why that is okay. Can you can you kind of just lay out what, how did people make sense of that, that some of your slaves were even Christian when they were captured?
1: Right, so this, again, this is something I'm looking further into for the second book project, but where I'm at right now, right? Um, there are Christian slaves of Christians and, especially when you're looking at the Black Sea context. A lot of the people being enslaved are Orthodox of various kinds and the enslavers are Catholic of various kinds. Although I just mentioned the Sards earlier and that adds another layer of complication to this. Anyway, that shouldn't, in the sort of theoretical philosophical structure of this, that shouldn't have been possible or acceptable and yet people did it all the time. And not only were they doing it all the time when we talked about these three big groups, Tatars, Circassians and Russians, by the time you get to the 14th century, basically anyone who's identified as Russian or Circassian is probably Christian in some, of, of some kind, right? Mm-hmm. So if that's not just a certain number of the slaves, but actually the majority of the slaves, this is a problem. So when you're looking at medieval sources, the when they notice this, which they frequently go out of their way not to notice, but when they do, they tend to justify it in terms of the Mamluk slave trade. And will say things like, well, if we didn't buy these slaves, then people from the Mamluk kingdom would come and buy them and would force them to convert to Islam. And we can't have that. So we're gonna buy them ourselves. And by this way, we're going to protect their faith, even though we keep them as slaves. So this was kind of the justification that was put forward at the time. There's another component to it, which is what I'm looking into further now is that there are people, enslaved people who succeed in petitioning for freedom on the grounds that they were wrongfully enslaved because they were Christian and some of them succeed. Mm. So occasionally this gets recognized as a contradiction and people actually act to resolve the contradiction, but it's more successful for some people than others. So slaves that are identified as Greek had better odds of winning these kinds of cases than people who are, for example, Bulgar, even though they're both Orthodox Christians. So this is not about religious belief and about the relationship between different sects of Christianity. This is about something else. And that brings us back to what does Greek mean? What does Bulgar mean? What does Tatar mean? Why is a Bulgar Christian any different than a Greek Christian? And so this is the set of questions I'm looking into now. But I think this is there's there's part of this that's about religion, and there's part of this that's about something other than religion that's kind of getting layered, layered onto it.
0: Yeah, and it and it it shows how it's all very multi-factor as well. It's like yeah, okay, well, m- maybe religiously we have to put Greeks in the same bag with Christian Russians, but you can see how Italian merchants saw Russians as somehow more foreign or more barbaric. And, and that made it less taboo, comparatively speaking, than enslaving a Greek, which was Greece was very closely socially connected, you know, and the Byzantine Empire was a a very prestigious, you know, powerful empire. So there are these different kind of political, cultural factors that all seem to come into play. Who ends up in this status, and then who can maybe get out of it? And there right. are all these cases you you deal with all these sort of legal records of people who, in one way or another, could challenge their enslavement, try to you know invalidate a sale by which they were passed from one captor to another. And and like you said, it's all very messy. You know, there was no like central register of like, and, right. and the other things that really surprised me, which maybe you can make a little more sense of too, is the fact that in some instances, both in Egypt and in Italy, there were some instances where contracts of sale were formulated. And one element was that the captive herself or himself had to sign off and acknowledge that they were a slave or acknowledge that they consented to this sale, (laughs) which seemed very bizarre to me. But but you, you explain that, well, really this, or you argue that, that this was mainly a way of protecting the buyer. So how did that protect the buyer's interests to have this line where the slave themselves have to say, yes, I accept this sale?
1: Right. So first of all, I mean, the first time I found one of those, I was shocked as well. And then spent a lot of time thinking about what it means, because again, in the vast majority of these documents, there's no explanation. It's just sort of sitting there. So the first question is, did the slave actually say that? Or is that something that the the person writing the document inserted as, as part of the legal structure of the document? And then if the enslaved person who's being sold did actually say that, under what circumstances, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And we can add additional layers to this. Is there a translator involved, all that kind of thing. So there's one one set of questions about what relationship the written document bears to the reality of whatever was happening in the room where the sale was taking place. What I noticed though, is that in a lot of the cases, these do seem to be cases where the status of the person being sold is potentially dubious they might not have been legally enslaved. And by putting this clause in the contract, if there's any questions later on, you know, if for example, you have a merchant in a Black Sea port buying a slave and they have this line in the contract that the slave consents to the sale. And then they take this person back to Venice and then in Venice, this person says, I was illegally enslaved and I'm gonna present one of these petitions for my freedom. The buyer can pull out the contract and say, no, you consented and you acknowledge that you were a slave. You can't go back on that now. So that's that's why I'm saying that I think these, these lines are in there as a protection for the buyer, for the buyer's uh, property rights. And then the question is, what does that reflect in terms of how the enslaved person was or was not actually involved in the sale? I've only been able to find one of these that has a section... Additional testimony, I would call it. And it, it's sort of a complicated story, but it's very interesting. So there's a woman who is in, I think it was Kilia, which is on the west coast of the Black Sea, near the, in the Danube Delta. And she's selling a slave to a Genoese merchant who's presumably going to take her into the Mediterranean and resell her to someone else. And so the document itself is pretty straightforward, but it has one of these clauses in it. And then after the main part of the document, there's another page where the seller explains what's going on, which is really interesting. Hmm. And so she's, she's married and she has two children, but her husband has abandoned the family and taken up with some woman in a different port in the Black Sea. And she's borrowed money from the local priest and is now in debt in addition to that. And so she needs to raise money. She doesn't say this explicitly, but slaves are pretty valuable. And so if she owned a slave as part of her household possessions, this is probably one of the most valuable pieces of property that she owns, right? So she's decided to sell this slave to make money. And both she and the slave testify that the slave is actually a slave. They explain that this slave, her name is Maria, was ransomed by the husband as a captive from Muslims who they don't specify, but these are probably Tatars. These are probably people from the Golden Horde. And she was supposed to be working off her ransom. So she's in this sort of weird situation where maybe she's a ransomed captive, but until she's paid back the value of the ransom, she's owned by the person who ransomed her. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of this situation, the husband disappeared. So now she's kind of stuck and she's gonna be sold into the Mediterranean and with this clause in the document, she's probably not gonna be able to get out of that status. So who knows what are the circumstances behind some of these other contracts where you don't have this additional page explaining everything that's going on. And so then I started asking myself, well, why did they write all this stuff down in this particular case? Because it's such a complicated case. I think it adds up to evidence which will keep Maria enslaved if she tries to protest later on. So I think it ends up still being in the interest of the buyer. And that's why it was written down. But but it goes straight to all these issues about how ambiguous status can be and how ambiguous some of these contracts, which seem to be very clear cut, but in fact, they're not. And so one of the ways of getting rid of some of the ambiguity is putting these phrases in the contract. And then the question is, what out of the words that are written in the contract did the slave actually say? And that can be quite difficult to figure out.
0: And it's very common for there to be a connection between debt and slavery. And there are societies around the world where indebtedness is one of the ways someone can end up in a position of servitude that you can roughly call slavery. And it shows again how the, the philosophy of slavery in the Mediterranean may have been well, if you're of a different religion and you're captured, then that is a legitimate avenue to becoming a slave. But it could happen other ways, like, like through indebtedness. Some people were just kidnapped, you know, raiders would just go kidnap people. And also, some people, you say, it does seem, were sold into slavery by their families, which you know, can sound incredibly outrageous to us, but to maybe some people in the Black Sea world at that time, it might've seemed like that was a a fair, reasonable thing to do if you have a child. You might even think they have a better future if you (laughs) sell them into this trade, Uh, which goes then to the significance of the Mamluks, which are this very striking, unusual regime that ruled in Egypt, for about 250 years, if I'm not mistaken, and yeah. are this really interesting presence throughout the whole book. So can you just tell us, is there, is there a way to explain briefly, what is a Mamluke?
1: So I'll, I'll explain this and I actually want to come back eventually to the question of child sale. So if I forget about okay. this, remind me, because that that was something that I did not believe the first time I saw it. Mm. And I have a more complicated idea about it now. So. A Mamluk is a military slave. The word Mamluk just means slave, but when we're talking about it in this particular context, it implies a male military slave. There are various states in the medieval Muslim world that used military slaves and the idea was that military slaves should be especially loyal because they're given privileges beyond either what other slaves would have mm. or what other soldiers would have. Mm. So military slaves tend to be used for you know, the sultan's bodyguard, for example. And so on the one hand, they're, they're given better food, better salaries, better living conditions in various other kinds of ways, they're they're given lives, you know, social status, um, power. They have power over other people, but they don't have power over themselves. They don't own themselves. So the idea is that everything they have in life depends on the person who owns them, who should be the ruler and only the ruler. And so they have every incentive to keep that ruler in power, Mm. unlike, for example, the ruler's sons, who, if they kill the ruler, might then become rulers themselves. So this is sort of the logic of that. What's really unusual about the Mamluk state, so this is Mamluk with a capital M, in Egypt and greater Syria, is that the military slaves take over. So there's a long story about how this happens in the mid 13th century, but uh, essentially the way it comes out is that people are, boys are purchased as slaves. They are given military training as slaves, fairly intensive military training. And this is where the coercive apparatus of slavery comes in, is this is not something that people would necessarily want to undertake voluntarily. When they get to the point of, graduating, graduation, manumission, and appointment to a post in the army are combined. So by the time they are actually in active military service, they're no longer slaves anymore, but slavery is used to make them go through the training. And it also creates this culture among all the people who end up in these military posts that they've been through this very intense traumatic experience together. But the post to which they're appointed and then their fortunes after that depend on whoever it was who originally purchased them and trained them. So there's still this kind of loyalty aspect to it that they end up in these positions of great power and great privilege and great wealth, but they only get it by going through a phase of slavery first. Then you have all these people who are in the military and they can rise as high as they can rise. Basically, some of them get appointed to be governors of provinces, you know, governors of cities, generals, and the prize is to become the sultan, to become the ruler of this whole thing. And so you have a whole series of people for about 250 years who started as slaves and end up as sultans. So these, I mean, these are the winners, right? And one of the things I'm very interested in is what happens to the losers? What about the students? You know, when you go back to the training program, what about the people who just really weren't very good at archery or what, what, what happens to them, right? We tend to focus on the people who make it. But this, so to bring it back to the question of child sale, this is one of the reasons why people in the black Sea might have occasionally chosen to sell their children because they knew about this. Because the people who did make it to the level, not even of sultan, but of, you know, regional governor or, you know, prosperous intermediate level commander in the army, would send messengers back home and bring their relatives. Mm. So people knew that this was a possibility. And then the question is, to what extent were they aware of if you sell your child to this merchant, they're gonna end up in the Mamluk sphere. Versus if you sell your child to this merchant, they're gonna end up you know, cleaning stables in Genoa. So that's a question of, you know, people in the Black Sea were aware of this, but to, to what level of detail were they aware of it? So this is one of the things that makes the child sale way of entering slavery a little bit more plausible is because you have this really unusual Mamluk system where there are people who, not only do very well for themselves, but are able to spread that around to their families at home. Those are the exceptions though. There are a few people who do really well out of the system and a lot, a much larger number of people who don't.
0: Yeah, that's a really great point because so many things were so striking in reading about the Mamluks in this context from the viewpoint of the slave trade, to think about how these people were treated and the privations they went through and the isolation. And then to think, Oh, and a few of them became the rulers of Egypt. <laughs> right. <laughs> the character keeps coming up of Sultan Baybars, who was, right. I believe, the first Mamluk general who sort of led a coup and made himself ruler and kind of the, the inmates like took over the asylum. And then the system, you know, Baibars, my understanding is that he's a tremendous hero, especially in the Islamic world, because... He defeated the Mongols. He was this crucial military leader who managed to stop the Mongol advance after they had already rampaged through, destroyed Baghdad. He's a really pivotal person in world history and he's a hero in the Islamic world. And it just happens that this is the system he came through. It's really bizarre. And then the regime kind of became this self-perpetuating system where people who had come through this process then continue to support and sponsor this slave trade so they could keep getting more captives to put through the same process. It was like its own little self-perpetuating cycle. So it was really an incredible phenomenon to, to read about. You know, and I, I, there were moments where I thought, well, did these people, did they have Stockholm syndrome <laughs> or, or did it just happen that this system worked out well for them and they wanted to, to keep it going?
1: about the Mamluk system, one of the things about this training process and the people who succeed and the fact that this system was able to survive in this way for 250 years, which is pretty impressive, right? There's the justification that has to do with with sort of promoting loyalty by giving people special privileges. And this raises all kinds of questions about elite slavery and how can you be enslaved, but also be a social elite, which are kind of interesting theoretical questions for people who study slavery. The way that people rise to the top of this system is through competence and vicious competition, mm. right? So the people who actually make it to the level of sultan, there's a certain amount of luck and a certain amount of politicking that you have to be good at politics. You have to be a good military leader. You have to be a survivor in multiple senses to make it into that kind of a position. And this is one of the reasons why this system is successful rather than leaving who is the ruler gonna be up to hereditary matters, you're selecting out of a particular generation of people who've been trained in a very particular way, only certain people are gonna be able to rise to the top. And those are gonna be people who are gonna have at least a certain base level of of, of competence both in dealing with other people and with leading a state. So that's one of the ways in which, counterintuitively, it actually works pretty well. The other thing I was going to say was about bybars, and this is about the coup. So the way that this emerges, and one of the reasons why he's such a hero is that he, so he didn't emerge alone. This coup happened in the early to mid-13th century, and it actually happened in the context of a crusade. So there was a crusade army in Egypt moving its way up the Nile. And the Sultan at the dot at the time, the last Ayyubid Sultan died, and there was a power vacuum. His son was not there to take over the army. And so, as sort of an interim measure, his sort of closest circle, who were all slave soldiers, took over. So there's a little group. There's Baibars and Klutas, and there's a couple other people, and who they decide to put as their initial ruler, because as slaves, they can't rule. They have to be manumitted before they can take position, be able to exercise power and issue orders to others. So who they put in to rule at first is actually a woman, Shahjah durr who was also of slave origin, but she was already free by that point. So she was able to step into the role of head of state and run the government. For a little while so this is really interesting this is one of the only women to rule egypt in her own name happens in the middle of this coup which i just find absolutely fascinating and also never mind that she was also formerly a slave and then there's some infighting that happens about out of this little group who's going to end up being the leader and it ends up being bybars. and so he with the last couple survivors of this little group defeat the attempted mongol invasion of syria which is another sort of big heroic battle. And then he and his immediate successors are the ones who defeat the last crusader strongholds along the the coast of Syria as well. So there's this period of a couple of decades where they defeat one crusade, defeat a major Mongol invasion, which no one else in the Islamic world was able to do. And then they kick the rest of the crusaders out of all their mainland strongholds all up and down the eastern coast of the mediterranean and so this is where the heroic image comes from and Bybars is sort of the main figure but there's a whole circle of people around him who are all mammals who are associated with this. and so in even in their own time there's some debate about like is it really okay to have former slaves ruling us but on the other hand they're so successful right and so the way that they present their legitimacy is, is being defenders of the Islamic world from all its enemies. And the reason why their subjects should accept them, even though they have this former slave background is that clearly God is supporting them. They could never have made it this far without divine aid shining down on, on all these endeavors. And so they've been sort of appointed to protect the Islamic world. And that image has, is still there in some parts of the Islamic
0: world, which is really interesting. Yeah, it certainly requires extraordinary explanation. You know, how this incredible turn of events could come about that that set of people end up a yeah. major civilization and then establish a regime that lasts for more than 200 years.
1: There's a great late 19th century novel about this that has been translated into English. It's by Georgie Zaidan and it's called Tree of Pearls. So it's kind of a, a swashbuckling adventure story about five bars. Okay. And Chajar Aldour is Tree of Pearls. So it starts with her and how she becomes the ruler. And then by bars, the noble knight shows up and solves all the problems and defeats all the evil enemies. And it's just, it's, it's hilarious. It's a lot of fun to read and the translation is quite good. So if people are interested in this, but don't don't want to read super serious detailed history I really recommend this book.
0: Wow, it's a tree of pearls and sounds like it should be a movie too.
1: Yes, <laughs> definitely.
0: But it does raise certain issues and problems for one thing a lot of these captives were being trafficked by Christian merchants from places like Genoa and Venice and delivered to the markets, I guess you could say, in Alexandria and Cairo. Uh, Others were trafficked over land by Mamluk traders. So didn't that cause some problem or upset in Europe, in the Christian world of how can these merchants be? trafficking captives and basically supplying personnel to this Mamluk regime?
1: Yeah, so this is one of the places where if you look at um, Italian sources and you look at Mamluk sources, you see very different things. Mm -hmm. So when you look at sources about the trade in Mamluks and these military slaves that are written by people who are living in the Mamluk kingdom, as far as they're concerned, most of the people who are trading in these, these slaves are either locals or they're part of the broader Muslim world. right? There are people from the Ilkhanate, there are people from the Golden Horde, as well as people from you know, within the Mamluk kingdom and people from um, different parts of Anatolia who are involved in this, but that's kind of the group you would expect to see. And there are one or two Italians that show up in the Mamluk sources When you look at Italian sources, as far as they're concerned, this trade is conducted entirely by the evil Genoese who are betraying the crusading cause by selling slaves to the Mamluks, who are gonna be forcibly converted to Islam. And not just that, they're gonna become soldiers and they're gonna fight on the opposite side of the crusades and this is a disaster, right? So if you only look at the Italian sources, you would think that all the traders are Genoese. (laughs) And then when you look at the Mamluk sources, there's one, two, maybe three, yeah, it's just not, they're, as a percentage, they're, they're not that important, although there are a few. So the political significance of this is different than the economic significance of this, is what I ended up taking away from this. And it's important from the perspective of the people who are writing crusading treatises to condemn this. But even if you got all Genoese merchants to agree to have nothing to do with the trade in Mamluks, the trade in Mamluks would still be going on. They don't actually dominate it. So the ideological aspects of it are different than the sort of practical mercantile aspects of it.
0: There was one other question about the Mamluks that seemed strange to me. So throughout the book, you discuss the role of, of color or race in how mm-hmm. people categorized slaves. And I think you make this distinction that buyer, merchants and buyers did care about the color of the people that they were trafficking, but not because that determined whether or not they were slaves, but because certain people thought certain groups or nationalities were more desirable as captives. And it was just a way of marking and categorizing who you're buying and selling. But it didn't make a difference to whether or not you were legally a slave and people of any color could be enslaved. But when it comes to the Mamluks, they did make this distinction where they had this sort of scheme of the world where they said, well, people who come from more Northern countries who are lighter skinned, they called them all Turks. So if you were, you know, whatever, g- Greek, Circassian, Tatar, you could all be labeled as Turks. And then people who came from more Southern countries who were darker skinned, they called Sudan. And either of these groups of people could be enslaved. You, know, you, could, you could have slaves who are so-called Turks or Sudan, but only Turks could be Mamluks. They, the, the, when it came to training people through this military system, only slaves from these more northern lands could become Mamluks. Do you have any idea why that was?
1: Yeah, so there's this, what this all ties back to is there's a medieval, basically I would call it an environmental theory of racism, right? That the environment that people are born in and grow up in shapes them physically and mentally. So you can say that people from particular regions have particular characteristics and those would be both physical and in terms of character and things like that. And then that as slaves then suits them for different kinds of work. The thread that ties this together with color is the idea that this has to do with humoral balance. So this is a bit of a digression, right? But people believed that, and this is something, this is a pan-Mediterranean thing. This is something that people in in Italy, as well as in the Mamluk kingdom and across not just the Mediterranean world, but a lot of the medieval world period would buy into, is the idea that human bodies are composed of hot and cold, wet and dry elements, which come together to make four humoral fluids. And each of those humoral fluids has a characteristic color, right? So black bile is black, phlegm is white, color is yellow, blood is red. And depending on which fluids are dominant in your body, that affects your physical color. So it's not as simple as people with dark skin have a lot of black bile. It's a lot more complicated than that. And I don't want to get into all the complications. (laughs) But in terms of hot and cold, wet and dry, that's where the climate influence comes in. So, and then we also need to add astrology to this, the positions of the stars and the planets at the times when people are born and the way they influence different parts of the world also affects people's bodies and affects their temperaments. So you put all this together and you end up with stereotypes about people who come from areas to the north versus people who come from areas to the south. And this is relative, right? So if you're sitting in Egypt, then everything to the north is everything north of Egypt. If you're and everything south, if you're sitting in Venice, then this is everything north of Venice or everything south. Everyone puts themselves in the middle because the middle is where everything is nice and balanced and equitable and, and the best, right? The best is is the middle balanced one. And everything else is tending towards extremes of one kind or another. But the extreme one of the characteristics that tends to be associated with the northern extreme is being physically strong and brave but not very smart and so this is considered to be a good set of characteristics for soldiers if you want to get people who are strong and brave but trainable Mm -hmm. then you would get them from the north and there are slaves from the south who become military slaves but they're not preferred Okay. Right. And it has to do with the, st- the set of stereotypes. So another way to break this down, right, is to say that when you're looking at sources about medieval slavery, Africanness matters, blackness matters. These things are connected to slave status. But the way that they're connected together is not the way that we're used to thinking about it. The set of connections is different, even though those characteristics are still there. They're, t- they're like bundled together in a different way. And so that's one of the things that can create some of these surprises is you see all the things that you expect to see, but they're not related to each other in the way in the way that you would expect to see them to be
0: related. Yeah. So I think that that connects to two sort of important last interpretive questions that Mm -hmm. I think it would be great to hear about. One is is the sort of geographic reframing, which which we sort of mentioned earlier that You can see these common beliefs and practices that seem to interconnect the Mediterranean world and cross these religious lines. Do you think that if you're trained as a medievalist, I believe, right? And when we talk about the medieval world, the Middle Ages, we tend to think of, you know, Europe, particularly Western Europe, Britain, France, Germany. And then we can kind of you know, loop in some Italy, some Iberia, even though Iberia was largely under Islamic rule. And that tends to be what we think of as medieval. But it seems that you're, you, you're still using that term medieval, but you're sort of refocusing, looking at this world that was connected by, by sea travel mainly, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: People, you know, people in my field talk about the Atlantic world and all these societies that were connected by travel and communication on the Atlantic. Do you think that do you think that this common culture of slavery and everything that's connected to it do you think it was basically a Mediterranean phenomenon and that we should look at that as sort of a social unit in the Middle Ages to the exclusion of the rest of Europe to the exclusion of say France Britain Germany uh, do you think basically should we redraw kind of the geographic lines of the different societies and civilizations and what we group together in a unit?
1: That's a really good question. Um, And I think it's something that changes over time, that what fits together as a unit in the early Middle Ages is maybe different than what fits together as a unit in the later Middle Ages. Because when I'm looking at the early Middle Ages, just looking at the connection between Northern and Southern Europe, for example, and how similar their practices of slavery are. There are shifts that happen in Northern Europe in, I wanna say the 12th and 13th century that have to do with laws of war and the concept of non-combatants that you would, and I mean, this is going outside of my area of expertise. There's a scholar named John Gillingham who works on this um, in the context of England and, and Scotland. And it's very interesting, but at what point does it not just become the default to take women and children captive? When does that change? Um, It it changes in a different way and at a different time in Northern Europe than it does in Southern Europe. And even here, I'm kind of overgeneralizing because what you see going on in wars between England and Scotland is different than what you see going on with, for example, the Teutonic Knights in the Baltic. Mm. They're still taking captives after Captives in English, in Scottish wars are not really a thing anymore. So that's one thing to to think about is how geographical connections change over time. And then there's this other question, there's definitely been a trend in medieval history towards Mediterranean studies, and that's definitely something that I'm participating in. But on the other hand, there immediately is this question, well, how far do you wanna push the Mediterranean, (laughs) right? I mean, at what point does it stop being Mediterranean and start being something else? And I'm kind of arguing the Black Sea is part of the Mediterranean, but maybe it's not, maybe it's its own thing, right? And it's connected in certain ways and it's not in others. So I like for that to be a little bit fuzzy, actually. I think sometimes it's helpful to have a very expansive Mediterranean and sometimes you wanna have a more narrow Mediterranean and you wanna be more specific about it. On the other hand, in terms of comparative slavery, we can push this even farther, right? I mean, you could look at societies that have absolutely nothing to do with the Mediterranean, but you're looking at a pre-modern society which sort of operates on a certain scale. There are a lot of similarities in certain ways with practices about slavery and captivity in the mediterranean and practices about slavery and captivity um in the american southwest before the colonial period so so then you get into questions about is this influence or is it's not influence right or is it common solutions to common problems Mm -hmm. and there are certain ways where when you take this really broad comparative view of slavery you do start to see things that emerge in culturally completely disconnected societies, but they are still doing things in quite similar ways. And so that is interesting in a whole different way to me.
0: Yeah, and of course, you know, as an early Americanist reading this, I was frequently making comparisons in my mind to Mm -hmm. the African slave trade in the Atlantic world. And that sort of emerged and mushroomed, in the 14 and 1500s, just at the time when this trade from the Black Sea is declining. And it seems that basically this trade was in the Mediterranean was shut down basically as the Ottomans took control of the Black Sea in Constantinople. And they didn't want Europeans to be getting those captives nor did they want the Mamluks who were also their opponents to be getting them either. So they gradually shut down the sort of choke points of this trade. But the Atlantic slave trade is emerging at basically the same moment. And there were there were points where I thought, you know, actually, there are cases here and there where some captives from Africa managed to go back. You know, there was a famous case of a uh, slave in Maryland who managed to get communication to England and from there back to Africa and was ransomed back and went back to his own country. You know, right. things like that do happen in the records that seem so bizarre and out of place. And yet they are kind of consonant then with these precedents you see from this Mediterranean world. So I was thinking of those comparisons a lot. And of course, you know, today the slavery, the place of slavery in the slave trade is a huge subject of debate and discussion in America. Uh, mm-hmm. But you you don't get into that. You don't get into making those comparisons. And so, of course, I was wondering if that was an intentional choice, that you sort of didn't want to get sucked into that, that subject and have everything be sort of seen through that lens. So was that a conscious choice to you to not bring up that point of comparison?
1: It was. Not because it shouldn't be though. I mean, I do think that these things are connected. I do think that practices of slavery, not just in the Mediterranean, but in the whole medieval world, as you sort of move from the medieval world into the early modern world, of course, there's going to be continuities. Of course, there's going to be influences. And I think that's something that, I mean, the more we work on this, the more visible it is. There are people working on it now, and there should be more. I mean, this is, this is, definitely an area for future research. I didn't wanna do it for two reasons. There has been sort of a past tradition of people who are studying medieval slavery because there's relatively little literature on medieval slavery, scholarly literature, looking at either American slavery or Roman slavery, but especially American slavery as a comparative point. And that troubles me as a medieval historian because I don't want to read backwards into the sources. And so part of it was a choice to try to extract as much as I could from what was within the time period without trying to look outward in order to make sure that I'm not bringing assumptions in that would be appropriate for the American case, but maybe not appropriate for this case, you know. So that was, that was sort of a methodological piece of it early on. And then the further I got into it, the more I thought, okay, if we're gonna have real comparative studies, if this is gonna be substantive, if you're gonna build this bridge, right, that connects the late medieval slavery to the early modern slavery, you have to have solid peers on both ends. And people have done really good work on early Atlantic early American um, just throughout the Americas the Caribbean you know Brazil all of this like that there's there's so much work on that and it's really good quality medievalists have been falling down on the job we have a lot of work to do and so I would rather come out with a really like hopefully a solid book that addresses the late medieval side of it not because the connection isn't interesting but to really make that connection solid the you have to have the starting point as well as the ending point. So I wanted to focus on having a good starting point. And then I hope that this is work that people would then be able to use to ask this next set of questions about continuities and connections and how that works.
0: I think that makes a lot of sense, especially that this is sort of a a pathbreaking book or one of several path books that tries to reconstruct how slavery actually worked in this, this era. So hence, it makes sense that you you don't wanna be sabotage from the beginning by focusing just on is this slavery as we expect to see it, you know, or just right. projecting our assumptions onto it. And, but I think that looking at it the reverse way, you know, starting to think about these comparisons, there were things that came to mind from the American experience that aren't often really talked about very openly. Mm-hmm. But they, Historians have started to notice because it's so unavoidable in the records. And a major thing was the fact that slave traders and slave purchasers in the Americas really cared about the ethnic and national origins of the slaves. And they very frequently noted this person is Wolof or this person is Yoruba. And they had these stereotypes, you know, just very similar to what you're describing in the Mediterranean. They had these notions about what kind of labor different captives could or could not do or were more suited for. And there continued to be this awareness of Africa and of where those people were coming from and their languages and also the factor of religion that you know, early on people have to come up with a lot of arguments and rationales. Why do we have slaves? And is this morally okay? Is this religiously acceptable? And one of the basic ideas was it's okay for them to be slaves because they're barbarians and heathens. But of course, then you have to deal with two complications, one of which is some of them were Christians. (laughs) There were were slaves from Congo and Angola who who were Christian. And you have to kind of, you know, brush that under the rug (laughs) one way or another. And then there's the matter of, okay, well, then what about when the slaves convert? and baptize and become Christians, uh, not become free. And and that's where an interesting contrast also came to mind was that a lot of slave owners in the Americas for a long time did not want their slaves to convert because it would raise that question of, well, then should they be free? Whereas it seems in the world that you're describing, that was already kind of baked in that right well of course they convert but that doesn't mean therefore they become free they have explanations for why they still have this slave status
1: and there's there's a lot of really interesting questions that can come out of that so when does the issue of conversion become problematized off the top of my head i would guess that protestantism and the idea of individual religious conviction might have something to do with that but this is me speculating right this is something that you know, needs deep looking into by multiple scholars. And so the connection between heathenism and barbarianism, right, those things could be connected, but they could not be connected. Then on the one hand, you have all these ideas about ethnic and racial groups, but on the other hand, do they have a religious component to them? Because that's one of the things I'm really struggling with is sort of the, the terms like Tatar have both a racial or ethnic connotation and a religious connotation and how do those things fit together and then what do they do with a situation for example um where you have a tatar who's catholic Mm. that confuses everyone in the way that you would have a slave perhaps from the congo who's christian now now what do we do so this is the sense in which the disorganization is not just for the medieval slave trade. These are imposing categories on a diversity of humanity that doesn't always fit in the categories. And of course it doesn't always fit in the categories. So what do we do when the category, when the systems of categories don't work, right? Both the people at the time, how did they react to those situations where their their systems and their frameworks just didn't explain what was in front of them? And then how do we as historians deal with the fact that we want to impose order, we want to be able to explain things, we want things to fit into patterns and systems, but that's not actually the way people work. Um, So how do we incorporate that into our interpretations as well to deal with situations where things don't work out the way that we expected them to?
0: Yeah, we want reality to fit the model.
1: (laughs) Exactly, exactly.
0: But your book is That Most Precious Merchandise, The Mediterranean Trade in Black Sea Slaves. So thank you so much for this illuminating conversation, Hannah Barker.
1: Thank you for inviting me.